At U.S. Bank, when we say we're in it with you, we mean it. Not just for the good stuff, the grand openings and celebrations, although those are pretty great, but for all the hard work it took to get there. The fine-tuning of goals, the managing of cash and workflows, and decision-making. We're in to help you through all of it. Because together, we're proving day in and day out that there is nothing as powerful as the power of us. Visit usbank.com to get started today. Equal housing lender. Member FDIC. Copyright 2024. U.S. Bank. Electricity. A big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hey, it's Kramer. My mission is simple, to make you money. Man Money is away today. But don't worry, I've got something special for you from my friends here at CNBC. Listen in. Welcome, new American investors. On tap tonight, Bitcoin, POTS, stocks, space stocks, and this. Game on. The Reddit crowd does DC. Smoking SPAC. The collision of EVs and wads of cash. Fortune tellers. It's in the cards. Hey out there, I'm Melissa Lee. Jim Cramer's off tonight along with me on this Fast Money Special Report. Tim Seymour, Delano Sapporo of New Street Advisors, and Lindsay Bell of Ally Invest. Let's get right to it. Take the CEOs of Robinhood, Citadel, Melvin Capital, and the trader known as Roaring Kitty. Put them all in a room together and you get a hearing that could bring down the House of Representatives. Kate Rooney has a preview of tomorrow's big testimony. Kate. Hey, Melissa. The focus of this House hearing tomorrow is mainly on halts we saw for those Reddit stocks in late January. We expect to hear questions about market manipulation as we see social media and stocks collide, and some questions about any conflicts of interest with hedge funds and market makers. You mentioned the big names set to testify. One who's not a CEO on that list is Keith Gill. He goes by Roaring Kitty and is facing accusations of securities fraud in a new suit filed today in Massachusetts. Still, the one who has come under by far the most public scrutiny is Robinhood's 33-year-old CEO, Vlad Tenev. Tomorrow is seen as a big test as his company heads towards an IPO. Among those advising him ahead of the hearing, former Securities and Exchange Commissioner Dan Gallagher, who joined Robinhood last year. Robinhood recently beefed up their communications team as well, hiring from a Wall Street regulatory agency and from former President Obama's Treasury Department. Robinhood has also reportedly hired Reginald Brown. He's a veteran congressional investigation lawyer who prepared Mark Zuckerberg ahead of Facebook's hearings. But people are also paying attention to Ken Griffin. He's, of course, the CEO of Citadel Securities, which is the market maker that works with Robinhood, and Citadel, the hedge fund, which helped bail out Melvin Capital. Those relationships will require some explaining to Congress. Analysts I've been talking to also expect lawmakers, of course, to grill these witnesses, especially the CEOs, similar to what we saw in the past with those big tech hearings. But very few expect deeper conversations about market structure. Melissa, back to you. You know, Kate, it's interesting because I think Keith Gill or Roaring Kitty or Deep Effing Value, whatever you want to call him um, these days, you know, he he has to sort of protect himself because he is, as an individual, facing potential investigations, facing potential charges here at this point. For Robin Hood, it's an interesting sort of story because they have to protect their business model, which may not necessarily be seen as completely in the best interest of its customer who they also have to defend against because customers have been so outraged by having their accounts shut down. They're dealing with very different issues. Like you Mm -hmm. said, Keith Gill has to protect his individual interests. Robin Hood needs to make the case that, A, they didn't collude with hedge funds and the decisions that they made were validated based on some of the market structure. And Citadel has a completely different set of issues. So it'll be interesting to see how all of these different witnesses have to talk their own book make their own case, but they're all still more broadly talking about GameStop. So there are so many different avenues to talk about what actually happened in late January from a ton of different voices here. Yep. Kate, you'll be all over it tomorrow. 
Uh, we're going to have the popcorn pop, that's for sure. Kate Rooney, thanks for keeping on top of all these <laughs> uh, testimonies that have been released in the past hour or so. Uh, Tim Seymour, I will go to you. There is a big cohort, a big contingent of, of Robin Hood traders who were outraged. They were so outraged that they drove halfway across the country and stood outside the headquarters because their accounts were shut down. Do you think they will get some answers tomorrow? No, I'm afraid they won't. And uh, you can you imagine not being able to trade in the middle of all that? And especially if you actually had you know, enough buying power in your account. And, and I think, uh, look, the 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 anger was palpable even just through social media uh, when, you know, that was all going down. So um, I, I think it's a case where, as just discussed, I mean, talk about uh, interests that are wildly divergent and you actually might see some sweet old mudslinging. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I don't think answers for the retail community. I mean, I think there's a couple messages. Again, understand really who your counterparty is. Understand, you know, where a little bit of leverage can be a cancer. And, I, you know, this is a little bit of a, of a you know, one of these public service announcements that we try to do or the more you know or trade school. But, but, but again, you know, 10 percent uh, of, of leverage in a stock that moves 90 percent on you uh, can be a cancer in your portfolio. And mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I know it's frustrating, but in some cases that was just you know, not not well handled in terms of risk management on an individual or, you know, clearly, look, at, at Melvin Capital, uh, there was there were risk management issues in one of the most sophisticated institutions on Wall Street. Um, but I think those are the messages. Yeah. I mean, I think it'll be fascinating to see if there is any sort of interaction or good old fashioned mudslinging between Keith Gill and the CEO of Melvin Capital, Gabe Plotkin, um, since they were two opposing forces in this trade. Keith Gill you know, feasibly being crowned the winner out of all this. Melvin Capital, Gabe Plotkin goes out of his way in the testimony to say what Citadel invested was not a bailout, which I thought was very interesting. It almost seemed like a touchy subject, Delano, when I was reading through that Melvin Capital testimony. It wasn't a bailout. They were investing when, when our value was low, and that's what happens all the time in the markets here. Yes, yes, precisely, Muslim. Thanks for having me. And, and yeah, I think in that situation, um, they wanted to clarify that um, you know, that they're still in this fight. And you saw big institutions versus the little guys. You feel, felt the little guys felt that they had won in this, this particular battle, um, and especially when I even had people calling me and saying, hey, what's going on with this? Uh, I believe this is going really, really high. They wanted to get in. Um, and I think people saw it as more, so much more as a movement than a kind of a battle rather than even just, you know, trading uh, based on fundamentals, which, you know, have in a lot of cases been long gone. It's more based on momentum. So this was bigger in a lot of cases. It was bigger than just, you know, GameStop. It was bigger for a lot of people. And so that's why you're seeing both sides sticking to their guns and, and saying, hey, we, we, we did this based on what we saw. And they're trying to you know, kind of hold face in that situation. Lindsay, do you think that do you think that Wall Street, I mean, do you think financial advisors, do you think that sort of the institutions, quote unquote, um, out there, do they have they changed the way they do business? Is business going to change because of what happened, even if it is just how we calibrate risk in our portfolio or how we view what the retail investor could actually bring to the table? You know, I, I think that this whole situation brings up a lot of, I guess, esoteric rules and regulations that have been in place for a really long time. And the retail investor is probably just learning about them for the first time more recently. Payment for order flow. How often have many normal people, everyday people, heard that term before, right? Um, so I think it's going to make them understand that there's a lot more to the piping of Wall Street and the infrastructure of Wall Street that they probably thought uh, existed before this. But, um, I, you know, I don't think it's necessarily going to change the way that firms do business. Of course, they'll have to rethink what happened in this situation, the ones that, that specifically got caught up in the center of it, no doubt. Um, but ultimately, I think that there's going to be these hearings, but legislation and, reg and regulation that comes out of it, I'm uncertain of what that's going to look like because there's just a lot of questions that need to be asked at, so that they get the right information, that they, they can really make a decision on what is the issue that we're trying to solve here for? Because I'm not sure that, that Congress right now understands that. Um, and hopefully they do get a little more clarity uh, in, tomorrow in these hearings. Yep. All right. Well, the Reddit rebellion seemed to unite disparate voices into a powerful yell that Shook a lot of institutions. Perhaps your voice was amplified. But with the anonymity of the Internet, how well do you really know 
your compatriots, all those other people on that thread. Who are they? Joining us now is someone who got to know the crowd better, Derek Thompson from The Atlantic. Derek, great to have you with us. Good to be here. Thank you so much. Maybe the romanticized version of this is that these are people who were burned somehow. They had families that were impacted by the financial crisis, et cetera, and they're uniting in some way to fight Wall Street. You say this is not true? That's right. I don't think it's true. I think that on the one hand, look, I get that this was a totally irresistible trade. Uh, you could stumble onto a Reddit page and be on the opposite side of a trade from a hedge funder and really feel like you were putting the screws to him. I understand emotionally the utter irresistibility of that feeling. At the same time, I think we got completely carried away in narrativizing what happened uh, with the GameStop bet. We were thinking that this was, you know, David versus Goliath, that this was a new way for the little guys to win against the big guys. Look, my point is trying to punish the rich by becoming a day trader just doesn't make any sense. We've seen over and over and over again that day traders often tend to lose money. They routinely get smoked by the bigger players. And in the biggest picture, I just think that waging war against big finance by becoming a day trader is like waging war against the casino industry by becoming a gambling addict. Like even if you get really, really good at it, you're still participating in a larger economy where there's institutional investors on either side of the trade. It's like being in the casino and saying, I'm getting really good at blackjack, but I'm also buying drinks, eating dinner, throwing chips at dealers, participating in this entire economy. It just doesn't make sense to think of this as a pure David versus Goliath story. I think it makes more sense to think of it as an extremely unique, maybe impossible to recreate, mm -hmm. uniquely irresistible trade. I agree that there are a lot of aspects of this particular story that may not be repeatable in the future and, and probably unlikely seeing the impact um, that that Melvin Capital has felt because of its of its big short position. Um, at the same time, you know, Derek, in terms of the impact of the retail investor, it doesn't matter what narrative we attach to this. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that all of these retail investors were able to get onto this Reddit thread and all go in and exact some sort of pain, even if it's just on Melvin Capital. I mean, that happened, regardless yeah. of what the narrative is. Uh, you're, you're actually right. I mean, look, this was unbelievably weird. And as media <laughs> people, as a writer, as someone on TV, it, it, is, it is, of course, incumbent on us to pay attention to extremely weird phenomena and say, what exactly is going on here? Let me give you two scenarios, though, two, two I think, plausible scenarios for what might be the long-term legacy of GameStop mania. Scenario number one is that a lot of Americans who got in this bet, a lot of people around the world maybe, who got into this bet, lost hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. And they recognize from being burned in that way that it's really actually very difficult to become a day trader, to sort of leave your day job, sort of stumble onto a Reddit thread and suddenly make a bunch of money. That you're just as likely, given your lack of sophistication, your lack of expertise maybe, to lose money on that trade, just like gambling in a casino might be really, really fun, but isn't guaranteed to bring you savings. That's one possibility. Another possibility, I think, is that there might, as, as I think you alluded to, be an institutional change. You might see, I think, hedge funds say, look, we had a, this, uh, we were trying to short a very popular brand name company. And when a bunch of people who felt an emotional affiliation with that brand name company realized what we were doing, they got on the other side of this bet. So it might make hedge funds and other institutions a little bit more cautious about shorting brand name companies, especially when the value of their stock is really low. Um, but I also think that, and I really hope that in the biggest picture, if we're concerned about savings, then at the federal level, at the sort of level of politicians and elites, we're not encouraging people to take their money and throw it into a stock mania for GameStop when the thing has gone up a thousand percent in the last three days. We should encourage people to spend less than they earn, put it in the stock market, be broadly diversified, and sometimes not even think about it, put it into, into index funds. So I do think that the enthusiasm of uh -huh. this narrative of David versus Goliath got us a bit over our skis. Are you worried, though, Derek, that in both of those scenarios, you're really um, discounting the sophistication of the retail investor? And I realize that there are plenty of retail investors out there, investors in general, not even just retail investors, maybe even hedge funds, so throw them in there, too, that may not be extremely sophisticated. They may not you know, have that sort of edge, but that there are plenty who actually are sophisticated and they know what they're doing and they know how to put on an options trade and they know how to do 
some due diligence. They know how to research a stock because information these days is all over. It's a commodity, basically. Um, and, and so not many people have that edge. I mean, Roaring Kitty, for instance, everything was public knowledge. And somehow he cobbled together this this uh, valuation, you know, this research on valuation that even the dean of valuation at NYU, Aswat the Motorin, said was actually a reasonable, reasonable case. I think what Roaring Kitty, Kitty did was actually kind of brilliant. <laughs> I, I think that his scheme was completely brilliant. And I am not coming on here to say that I know that of the thousands, ultimately millions of people on Wall Street bets on Reddit, that I think that they all had no idea what they're doing. A lot of them clearly had an incredibly clever plan to put the screws to a hedge fund, and it clearly worked. Citadel needed a $2 billion infusion of capital. So the reason that I compare this to betting, the reason I compare this to gambling, is that just as among people who play blackjack or you know Texas Hold'em, there are people who are sensational at it and there are people who aren't sensational at it. It's the same, I'm sure, with day trading. Right? There's some people who are totally brilliant at playing the market and seeing moves before they happen. But there's also a lot of people who aren't. And they are seduced by the perceived ease of this game into thinking that they can play it well just because some famous people with really funny names online have shown that they can play it well. And what we saw with GameStop, what we saw with the price of that stock declining, what, at the end of the day, like 99.8% from its high, 80 mm-hmm. something, mm-hmm. that lots of ordinary investors lost lots of money. And that's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned hey, about elites and politicians valorizing this story in such an uh, unsophisticated and simplistic way that encourages more people who aren't sophisticated day traders to get into the act too late. Hey, Derek, it's Tim. Uh, Really interesting stuff. Um, You used the word seduced. How about induced? How about a world where there's financial oppression, the Federal Reserve has forced everybody out the risk curve. Um, You obviously also have economic factors at work. And and so people uh, are taking risks uh, that they're just not in a position to take because on some level they have no choice. And then the other second part of the question is, um, do you think this event happens as it played out uh, if the capital siege wasn't, you know, a month earlier. Yeah, I, I love words. So, you know, seduced and induced, I think, is a, is a lovely juxtaposition. I think that, broadly speaking, you can be induced to investing in equities or into shifting your financial investments away from bonds toward equities for exactly the reasons that you pointed out. But nonetheless, you can be not induced but seduced by a stock like GameStop when you see it appreciate by 900 percent in 100 hours and say, oh, I'm going to get in on this because it's going to be like, you know, the Bitcoin story over the last seven years and go to the moon. Uh, That, I think, is the difference between seduction and induction in this case. I think it's totally reasonable for people to say to look at the stock market and to look at its appreciation in the last five years uh, alongside juxtaposed with uh, low interest rates and say, If I have money to save, I'm going to bet on equities maybe as opposed to bonds. At the same time, I think that the people getting in on this GameStop bet after the first 24 hours, we know that they all lost their money. So obviously something went wrong there. And the thing that went wrong, I think, is the seduction aspect of the story. Derek, great to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And anytime we can say seduce versus induce, you know, I I welcome it. Um, Delano, I think that, you know, one issue here is going to be the notion of free speech and the role of social media. Um, Roaring Kitty is sort of going to get the grilling because he's the representative of of this Wall Street Bets forum. At the same time, what's more dangerous, a Wall Street Bets forum or an Elon Musk saying that he's going long GameStop or Chamath Palihapitiya saying that he's going to go long GameStop. They have power in this market. They have followers in this market. They tweet one tweet and the stock moves. What should the SEC really be focusing on here? Thank you. That's a great question. And I think that is something that needs to be brought to, to the table and say, hey, what should we do with this? Because you're seeing a lot of that across the board, not even the big names that you mentioned, but you know, everyone online posting gains for certain plays or strategies they use um, and inducing or seducing, whatever word you want to call it, people into getting into these trades. And this is long after maybe the move has already been made in these names. And so you saw, as mentioned by Derek, after that, what happens? If you're someone that follows into this trade and it goes down um, and you're seeing, saying, there, hey, I lost the, I'm the one holding the bag, 
that is something that we have to worry about with people that are not really doing their own due diligence, not really researching, and they're following people that are either tweeting or posting something online and saying, hey, this is something that I want to do just based on that. And that's something that, you know, as people here on this panel, we're all uh, looking at it and making sure that our clients are not get falling into that trap. You're seeing a lot of people even now getting into different things, which, again, if it's their research, whether it's penny stocks, that just they, I don't feel like they fully researched and fully understand, but they're seeing someone that they follow or admire talk about it. So I think that's definitely something that regulation will look at uh, pretty closely here. All right. Tech investing guru, ARK Invest, Kathy Wood, was on CNBC earlier today with an update on our widely held followings. We have been adding to Tesla. Uh, we, our confidence in Tesla has grown as we've done research on what ride sharing potentially could add. It could limit the risk significantly. If you are short term in your focus, um, you probably don't want to spend too much time investing in Palantir. Uh, so that's music to our ears because, and we do believe more and more companies are going to start behaving in this way instead of catering to short-term uh, time horizons uh, and short-term, short, what we would say in some cases short-sighted shareholders who are much more interested in profits now, dividends now, share repurchases now, then they are in a company investing aggressively for going short-term profitability in order to really to catch some very big waves out there. You've got Elon Musk, you've got Jeff Bezos, you've got Richard Branson uh, in another way. Uh, and uh, on the technolo technology side, we see SpaceX and Blue Origin pushing the envelope. So costs are coming down and the technologies are finally ready. Taking a look at some of her holdings, uh, different returns so far this year. But again, as Kathy Wood had mentioned, her hallmark is the long-term vision. She was early on the Tesla trade, early on the Bitcoin trade. When Wall Street thumbed their noses at these stories, she, along with a lot of retail investors out there, identified the potential of these stories, Lindsay, and they wrote it. And they wrote these stories higher. What do you what do you make of her approach to investing? Because this is what the younger you know crowd supposedly. <laughs> I'm not amongst them, that's for sure. Um, like to identify, they like to see future stories. They want to see what the world can be and invest in that vision. Yeah, no, I think it's kind of refreshing to hear this from Kathy Wood, and especially as she ascends into power um, with all, all these people now uh, really interested in her different ETFs that have performed uh, exponentially well over the course of the past year. Um, and they're listening to her. It's given her a voice to remind investors, especially retail investors, that investing is a long-term game. You're doing it for a goal, an end goal. At least that's what we tell our customers at, at Ally Invest is, what are your goals? Uh, is it retirement? Is it saving to buy a house? Is it uh, you're saving for a college education for a child? The long-term nature of investing is, is coming back into focus. And I think that what we just talked about with GameStop and some of these, these other phenomena, these speculate, speculative trades that have just occurred, have reminded investors that, hey, the short-term game is a little tougher if you're not you know, in it on a daily basis and you don't know what you're doing. So maybe mm -hmm. you should try the long-term game right. of investing. And so to hear from her, I think it, it really uh, is a reminder that that's what investing is all about. Sure. Fact of matter, though, is a lot of her holdings are amongst these companies that have had very short-term, very sharp gains. <laughs> and I'm thinking of Tesla, and I'm thinking of space because of the launch of her new space ETF. And I'm thinking of DraftKings, Tim. These are stocks that have really been caught up in this sort of, you mentioned being induced, um, but part of this, yeah. this push out of the, on the risk curve for stocks that are going to gain faster. Well, it, it, you know, and I, I could argue it's very seductive to be investing in sectors that, that are, are, are great concepts and don't have to make money now. And, and so, look, I'm, I'm, as an investor, I've been on both sides of this. Uh, look, I'm, I'm long DraftKings. I, I acknowledge the valuation makes no sense. Um, I, I have, at many times in my career, have been unwilling to invest in, in a story stock, especially where there's no multiple, and, and, and very clearly have made that view on Tesla. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think you have to pick your spots. And, and I think also the market 
today. Um, I, I hate to link this back to the Fed, but I, I, I think when, when money is free, um, you're going to get a lot of people that can get behind concepts for companies that don't make money a lot easier. I'm not saying that these stories, all of them, even ones that I'm invested in, um, wouldn't be great stories without the Fed flooding the world with money. Um, but I, I think that's an important dynamic. The, the second thing I'd say is um, similar to what's been said. Uh, short term, the market's a voting machine. Long term, it's a weighing machine. L let's see. You know, let's see where all these, these stocks go. We know the companies that have, that have uh, bristled against having to give quarterly guidance and basically said we're not going to do it. And they've used COVID as an opportunity and maybe um, they'll, they'll never give it again. And maybe this is another one of these trends that was accelerated in COVID and doesn't change after COVID. So, um, but I agree with everyone. Look, as someone that's managed a long, short equity portfolio for much of his career uh, and, and, and found that I don't think I was as good of an investor when I had a monthly investment cycle to report to. Um, now that I'm investing and looking for long-term compounding ideas, doesn't mean that I fall asleep at the switch. It means that I can invest for my investors with a longer-term time horizon or the tolerance for possibly buying volatility at the best possible spot rather than selling it. And, and I think that's, uh, mm -hmm. you know, those are the messages that I, I boil down out of this entire discussion. I, I do believe in longer-term investing. Uh, I don't believe in just throwing money at something just because somebody has said something will happen tomorrow and we're not sure it will. Coming up in this Fast Money special report, the new American investor. One SPAC continues its surge after reports that it is taking one dreamy EV maker public. But is there really something under the hood here or will investors be in for a shock? We'll break that down next. Plus, speaking of surges, Bitcoin is up again and pulling other cryptocurrencies up along with it. But is the tail wagging the dog, so to speak, or the doge? We'll explain back in two. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Welcome back to this Fast Money Special Report, the new American investor. Shares of Churchill Capital, a SPAC, have been on a tear since the beginning of the year on reports of a possible merger with Lucid Motors, leading Lucid are many former Tesla execs and interesting potential partnerships, but has still yet to deliver a tangible product. I feel like this is the story of SPACs these days. Uh, Churchill Capital, by the way, it is up 40% this week alone and on very heavy volume. Yesterday, for instance, it traded 95 million shares. That's about a third above its average daily volume for the past 30 days. Um, Delano, do you take a look at It's just fascinating to watch a blank check company um, trade this much higher on heavy volume on a belief that it's going to acquire a pre-revenue EV company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Melissa, and that's like you said, that's it's it's really fascinating. And you know, for me and 
I've, I'm not long very many specs myself or clients, but it's not for the fact that I don't believe in it. Obviously, you look at performance of some of them, it's been really, really strong. But you have to really understand the companies and understand where the potential is. As you mentioned with Lucid Motors, obviously, electronic vehicles is a space, an industry that's going to keep growing. And that's something that people want exposure to. But it's a really hard industry, um, when you talk about automotive, to actually scale and to, to have production. And so that's something that's going to be taken into account if you're an investor, uh, because there's going to be some volatility going forward if there's able to meet production goals they're able to do the things that they're actually planning to do in the future. So it's a long-term view for investors. Um, and with SPACs in general, uh, this is thing that's obviously very hot with younger investors. I'm having people wondering, you know, what's the next one that's going out? What are the next innovative things that are out there? But this is something that you have to be really, you know, understand what you're investing in and make sure that you're invested for the wrong reasons. It aligns with your goals uh, and you're making sure that you're fully, fully intertwined with what's going on with these companies. Don't just skate to where the puck is headed, Tim to use a sports metaphor, which is completely unlikely, listen, as you know. Listen to you. I mean, you're, you're talking about the great one. I mean, this is Wayne Gretzky stuff, Mel. So, uh, yes, you do. And, and it's interesting. So whether it's GM and Ford, where investors seem to be skating to where these, you know, OEM, you know, behemoth or not on a market cap relative to Tesla, but these, uh, in other words, you, you've, you've got a dynamic here where uh, I think EV has been such a sexy area. It's been such a sexy area for investors to ponder. And, and so when you combine that with a SPAC dynamic where, um, look, you, the SPACs afford different you know, elements to, uh, to, to the capital markets for an EV story where there's less regs, there's less requirements, you know, arguably, on uh, some of the counting that might be needed for an IPO. Uh, there's certainly some price certainty on valuation. And in some sense, there's actually even a, an out and a put and a floor for investors. So the structure makes some sense. I mean, there's 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 a lot going on here. And as someone that's uh, I, I'm invested in a couple SPACs, I have a couple SPACs in my cannabis ETF that I think were, were companies that ultimately were able to bring in companies and actually merge into uh, into the structure entities that I don't know would have gotten the listing otherwise. And, and that's been kind of exciting and a catalyst for me on some of those investments. All right. Speaking of EVs, do not miss our interview tomorrow with Lordstown Motors founder and CEO Steve Burns. That's 6 p.m. Eastern right here on CNBC. Coming up on this Fast Money Special Report, The New American Investor, check out this pot stock ripping higher, up more than 56% the last few months. So does the burn rage on from here? The CEO will join us next. Plus, the hot new alternative investment could be trading cards. Yeah, Wall Street and Main Street are rushing back to your childhood with Cash for Cards, we'll explain in just a bit. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Cannabis retailer Green Thumb Industries announced last week it had scored the first U.S. pot IPO with one institutional investor buying all $1 million worth of stock offered. That's $100 million in stock offered. So is weed really the new Wall Street darling? Let's bring in the CEO of Green Thumb Industries, Ben Kovler, to tell us more about this. Ben, great to have you with us. Good to see you again. Hey, Melissa. Thanks for having me. So it's 3.1 million shares, as I understand it, $100 million worth of stock to a single investor. Um, filings make it look like it's Palestra Capital, which had just filed a 13D, saying that it had a 5.3% stake. Are they active um, with you in terms of the direction um, of the company and how this money should be used? Uh, yeah, so thanks for having me. Thanks for continuing to tell the U.S. story. This is really an American cannabis story. And I think the capital markets and following the money, as you guys have been good at doing and talking about, is really a leading indicator. Uh, and so we can't talk about specifically who. We can say it was a new investor 
into the space, institutional quality, and we think just a tip of the iceberg of what's to come for the space. What Again, has, what has changed, Ben? I mean, I'm sure that you, you probably wanted to do this a long time ago, but what has changed um, but, you know, over the past year? Is it the Biden administration? Is, was there a specific catalyst uh, where institutional investors said, you know what, I can, I can do this now? Uh, well, Willie, you know, I started the business seven years ago. Uh, we've been working on SEC registration. Let's just back up and try to explain to the viewers because what happened is very complicated. Uh, there's confusion about Canadian LPs and U.S. MSOs. This is an American MSO story. This is the great American growth story. Within the MSOs, registering with the SEC, that's the United States Security and Exchange Commission, is a big deal. Filing gap financials. And last week, as you mentioned, we had an S-1 go effective. That means the SEC blessed selling U.S. Security, securities, registered securities in the U.S. to U.S. institutional investors. That's never happened for an MSO before. Uh, we are breaking new ground. Green Thumb has done that the whole time. We were among the first to go public. We were the first to do a debt deal. And even more nuanced, there's no banker on the deal. So gross equals net for our shareholders. We're really looking out for the shareholders at every possible junction. So has something changed? There continues to be change, Melissa. Tim knows it. There is change in the air. In the last two years, you've had high-quality, blue-chip U.S. institutional research come out. That's brand new. You have U.S. firms advising companies. You have deals happening. Uh, and so there's change in the air. We are here leading it because at the end of the day, this is about the American consumer choosing cannabis. Mm -hmm. That's our North Star. Uh, and the capital markets will be a leading indicator for that uh, because the markets are strong, right? Animal spirits are alive and well, and that's what's leading us. Hey, Ben, it's Tim. Yeah, and, and, you know, interesting to note that the cannabis capital raises, including yours, I mean, look, uh, Green Thumb's up 10% since a massive issuance. And, and what we've seen within the sector is, is that issuers like yourself, especially, you know, the, the top tier stories are, are actually getting rewarded by raising growth capital. So my question then goes to, it, where, where do you, you know, where do you think uh, cannabis is a growth industry that's 30 to 40 percent? And again, the U.S. market um, and, and valuations that that really don't reflect even the growth here. Uh, any sense on where uh, the industry should trade on a multiple? Because there's growth industries that we've been talking about on the show that trade, you know, five, ten times. Uh, and so the re-rating process, in my view, has just begun. Totally correct. It's an amazing opportunity for U.S. investors to invest in the great American growth story. There's a decade of growth coming here. Stocks are too cheap. I was on your show when the stock was half the price it is today, and I said it's too cheap. It's still too cheap because the consumer is choosing this. There's structural irregularities in the system that make it so cheap, but that doesn't prevent our business from being profitable mm -hmm. uh, and from the ability to grow. And for our ability to take that capital that we just raised, invest it inside the business and create astronomical returns for shareholders. And I heard you quote Ben Graham a few minutes ago, short-term voting, long-term weighing. That's exactly right. <laughs> and people are just learning how to vote for cannabis. You cannot even buy U.S. MSOs on Robinhood. Yeah. Structurally, this thing has not evolved all the way. We are still in price discovery. Equities are an amazing opportunity for right. people who can understand and get in. Right. Ben, it's a pleasure speaking with you. Hope to see you soon. Ben Kovler, Green Thumb Industries. So and, and Ben had mentioned the sort of the discrepancy in terms of what is allowed on Robin and what is not so far. And that's why, Tim, we've seen this sort of run up in a lot of these ca um, Canadian, specifically cannabis stocks. Yeah. Why do you think, though, specific yeah. to the Green Thumb story, it's up about 45 percent or so year to date, underperforming um, the MJ ETF, as well as your own ETF, CNBS, which is up 100% year-to-date. Why, why that underperformance, in your view? You know, it, it's, it's not really just Reddit phenomena, and, and it's, it's, so let's be really clear about that. I, I, I think it's, it's a combination of the capital markets that are backwards. Uh, again, the fact that the biggest investors in the world still can't really own uh, a lot of these companies. So, look, there, there are good companies in Canada, uh, but there's more good companies in the United States that have a much bigger growth opportunity. But when you can trade on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, you're going to trade with a much higher multiple. So to the extent that uh, these are proxy plays, these Canadian companies, Companies at a time when the U.S. dynamic gets better and better, people will buy what they can buy. And as an investor, by the way, at times, I want to own the places that are going to be recipients of that capital flow, even, even if 
it you know may not be the cheapest company out there. Um, so again, uh, you know, I, I have structural challenges buying some of the U.S. companies. So um, I think what Ben is talking about is ultimately that when capital markets change, the re-rating is going to be extraordinary. Institutions are not even here yet, and and, and so for investors now getting in ahead of inve- of some of the biggest investors in the world is a really exciting opportunity. And the fundamentals are good. Um, and everyone needs to do their own work on research and valuations and good companies and there's bad companies. But um, there is we're, we're not late on this trade. We're early. Yeah. Coming up, the Bitcoin boom. It continues as the crypto surges past 52,000 bucks today. Other currencies following suit. There's now even a two billion dollar whale in Dogecoin. But it might serve some well to see what the Dogecoin founder told me. Plus, we're taking your tweets. The retail trader surge has plenty of folks at home scratching their heads on what to do next. So send us your biggest questions. We'll try and answer them. Back in two. Welcome back to this Fast Money special, The New American Investor. Crypto on an absolute tear with Bitcoin surpassing the $52,000 mark, pulling others along up with it. Take a look at Dogecoin. It is up more than 900% this year. But listen to what the founder of Dogecoin told me back in 2018. There can be, you know, Litecoin, Feathercoin, whatever coin. There can be Dogecoin. Did you think of it as a joke back then? Yeah, absolutely. It definitely started as a joke. And if you like look back at you know the original website that I put up at Dogecoin.com, it specifically said it's a parody cryptocurrency. So um, from the very beginning, it was supposed to be a joke. But here we are talking about Dogecoin years later, <laughs> breaking down this crypto boom for us is Mike Buccello, partner at Block Tower Capital. Um, you know, Mike, when I when I interviewed Jackson Palmer way back when, I never thought that fast forward. Um, to this story today where Bitcoin's above 50K uh, and we're talking about Dogecoin of all things. Why do you think that there's this fascination with Dogecoin that is clearly, as stated by the founder of Dogecoin, a joke? Well, it's a continuation of of the community and, and, and meme building society of the 2014 origins of Dogecoin. So you have, interestingly enough, it was one of the most accessible cryptocurrencies during the Wall Street Bets movement. Uh, and so because it was listed on Robinhood, it was used as, you know, I call it capitalist warfare, the social revolution. And so it had this sort of, as any commodity, long-term values driven by supply, short-term value and prices driven by demand. And so you have these individuals like Elon Musk or these groups like Wall Street Bets getting behind it, creating a further kind of meme, a further community build. And, and what that leads to is near-term price appreciation. But if you look at the underlying fundamentals of Dogecoin, and the founder would, would agree, it's infinitely inflationary. And so if you think about Elon and Tesla, for example, they're very clearly betting with their balance sheet um, versus, versus their Twitter account, because the last time I checked, Tesla bought a billion and a half dollars of Bitcoin, not a billion and a half dollars of Dogecoin. And if you'd ever want to debate the merits of Dogecoin as a store of value or a means of currency, I'd be happy to, uh, to have that conversation. Because <laughs> clearly, I, I, I imagine you, you think it is not. Um, but in terms of the Wall Street Bets crowd and, and sort of the retail um, interest in Dogecoin, is it also because it trades in pennies and it's more accessible in that way for people yeah. who might not understand that you can actually buy a fraction of a Bitcoin if you wanted to? So- Friends of mine from ex-Goldman colleagues to, to union workers to, to cops and firemen around New York, uh, we talk about this often. It comes up often. I think the idea of it being an accessible asset that trades at a low dollar value where you can own, in some instances, people say a thousand shares. It's actually you know tokens. Um, I think that low dollar value creates also an effect because if you think about this way, this thing's trades, it went from a half a penny last year to nine cents at its peak this year. That, that percentage return makes for a great headline. And people chase return, they chase yield. Uh, and, and when you can trade in the thousands of tokens, it feels more interesting to the general retail investor. But again, that is a yeah. unfortunate result of a retail-oriented asset that doesn't sure. really hold much long-term value. Still a 900% return on, on any dollar amount initially invested is still a 900% return. Um, and, and I would welcome that in my own portfolio. Uh, but, Mike, I want to ask you about this uh, Wall Street Journal article that Dogecoin has one top dog, one holder, uh, with $2.1 billion. Do you think this is Elon Musk? I... I 
I would find it exceptionally hard to believe. So that type of accumulation of Dogecoin would have been noticed early on. So the, I, I think the general idea behind that is it's either a, an exchange. So Dogecoin right. is one of the most widely traded assets in crypto. So it could be an exchange wallet or it could be an early whale, an early holder, someone who mined uh, Dogecoin back in 2014. They had their own ASICs. There was a very small mining community then. Could have just held up until now. So it's hard to say. Um, I do not think it's Elon uh, Musk, uh, although someone's been trying to kind of spoof the system, sending, I think, Elon's birthday amount yes. in Dogecoin to the wallet, uh, you know, every every few weeks or so. But I think that's just the community and, and, and trickery in a way to make people believe that Elon is really behind this. 28.061971 Doge every few weeks. Yeah. Mike, great to speak with you. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Mike Pichella. Delon, I'm going to guess that you're going to go nowhere near Doge. <laughs> Melissa, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, I missed out on the 900 percenter run there. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people are like, like was mentioned by Mike, they're chasing the headline, they're chasing the yields. Um, so this is obviously a place with the Dogecoin where you saw large returns. One of my friends had left it in, in one of his wallets for a while and just looked in, saw a great return on, on investment. But, you know, as mentioned, if you're looking for that long term store of value, I like crypto. I like Bitcoin. I like Ethereum. I'm long. And I think, it, it, as mentioned, the adoption is going to increase. And the big catalyst for 2021 is institutional buy-in. I think before mm -hmm. there was a lot of pushback based on, you know, not really understanding the asset, the sense that it's decentralized for these currencies and maybe scared institutions a little bit. And now as institutions start to warm up, that big catalyst um, is a thing that, you know, I'm looking at for, for 2021. And, and hopefully, um, you know, more institutions warm up and they allow even advisors to kind of, you know, custody that for clients. That's something that we're looking at and want to, to be involved with for clients as well. All right, coming up on this Fast Money Special Report, the new American investor, the next new opportunity in old classic assets, trading cards. We'll be back to explain. Welcome back to this Fast Money Special, the new American investor. Our next guest was an early investor in Twitter, Uber, Facebook, and Venmo. Now looking at new opportunities out there and how the Internet has changed how we invest also. Gary Vaynerchuk is the CEO of VaynerMedia. He joins us now. Gary, great to have you with us. Um, you, you were early in on a lot of the social media companies that, that have really um, changed how we view the world. How do you think what we've seen with the Reddit rebellion, how, how has that changed uh, how we invest, do you think? Well, I think, you know, you're seeing the maturity of the internet itself. I think people are incredibly naive to how early we are in all of this. I look at all of us as cavemen and women in the digital age. I mean, when you think about VR, when you think about what's going on on the blockchain. So I think it changes because people are realizing the power of communities forming have an ability to focus and impact, and we have to adjust to that. So in, in terms of... Um Wall Street institutions saying that this is an anomalous situation. This is a weird phenomenon. Um, it probably won't happen again. What do you say to them? That's naivete completely grounded in their own self-interest. And I think a lot of time ostriches get hurt. And so I think that it is not an enigma and a not an anomaly. And even though on paper it looks like it was throttled because of where those stocks are today, what that does is it leads to alternative investments and people are looking at different plays right now. When you look at what's going on with obviously Bitcoin and Ethereum, but when you look at what's going on with NFTs or sports cards or many other areas, there's always a counter reaction and the internet brings people together and the masses the masses have a lot of power. Hey, Gary, it's Lindsay. Um, I think hey, you're Lindsay. making a really great point. The masses do have power uh, here. And I, I find it very interesting that they're, they are um, embarking into the world of investing, something that many people didn't have the confidence to do for the longest period of time. Do you think that they'll stay in the investment space in the, in the stock market? Or do you think that they're going to you know, flock to these alternative investment ideas like you just stated. I know sneakers is another area, a hot area too, uh, for trading. Where do you see the future? I think it's a game of, of both, right? I don't think it's or, I think it's and. But I think this is the culmination of a decade of entrepreneurship and investing and savviness and capitalism and Americana maturing. I mean, you have an incredible amount of 13 to 
21-year-olds who associate themselves with entrepreneurs or influencers that are going to do business. And so I, I think that this is a reality to the access people have through things like this and the interest people have. Go look at everybody 15 to 25. Entrepreneur is in a stunning amount of those bios. Hey, Gary, this is Delano. Um, so when you think about NFTs, you mentioned digital scarcity, NFTs. What's going on in that space? Um, it's really early, as you mentioned. I think it's a great area for people to really get tapped into, do some research. What are you seeing? Where can people start to learn a little bit more about that space? You know, I think when you look at that, um, Bitski.com is a platform that I think is worth looking at, the Flamingo Project. I mean, there's a t if you just go to the hashtag NFT on Twitter right now, there's an incredible amount of uh, information. Beeple, the artist, like just Google search what he's up to with Christie's. This is, for me personally, this may be the space that is the manifestation of my life. Supply and demand, scarcity, trading, IP. If you want to talk about something to pay attention to, the IP wars for NFT rights are going to be remarkably interesting. And just the fact that we're living in a digital world. What's a blue check verification worth to a lot of people in, in the world today? Unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, quite a bit. And I think with the rise of VR, you could really start to understand why these NFTs have a real shine. I think that that NFT is going to be something coming out of a lot of people's mouths on this program over the next half decade. Just quickly, Gary, we've got under a minute, but I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned trading cards. Do you have one in particular that you take pride in? <laughs> you know, to try to bring value to everybody, for me, it's probably a Frank Thomas 1990 Leaf because that was my favorite card as a kid or uh -huh. a Joe Namath rookie, but Jordan, LeBron, and Kobe. Wow. Messi, Messi and Mbappe, those five are just fire. <laughs> we'll have to see him next time you're on. Gary, great to see you. Thanks so much for your time. Gary Cheers. Vaynerchuk, Vaynerchuk Media. Uh, Tim Seymour, just quickly. I mean, it's fascinating stuff that he's talking about. Well, first of all, I, I, I've got his Pete Rose rookie card. And Mel, you were asking me about my Cal Ripken rookie card. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've got yeah. a 1977 Tops baseball sure open pack that I, I want to sell to Gary. I'm going to sell all it right. to Gary, though, because it sounds like he's a buyer. Tim Delano, Lindsay, thanks so much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Fast Money special report. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.